Father, we thank you for because of Christ we can stand before you. Father, we know these truths because your word was inspired by your spirit. And therefore, it is infallible and inerrant and conveys to us your plan of salvation, your plan for the ages. We thank you, dear God, that you have placed us in the new covenant, or this covenant that for centuries, really millennia, the prophets longed for, not knowing exactly how things would happen, not knowing even the name Jesus of Nazareth. And Lord, you have put us in this covenant so we could be part of this newly inaugurated kingdom of Christ. Help us to glorify you until this kingdom is realized in physical form. We love you. We anticipate that day with great eagerness. Help us to live as though we are already there, believing and celebrating your truth. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we always count it such a great joy and privilege to study the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Sunday is my favorite day of the week. I get to see you. I get to study the Word of God, to sing, to fellowship, to pray, to be around to everybody. And we get to study just this magnificent final paragraph here in 1 Peter chapter 1, at least final paragraph of this section. This section I have called the pillars of Christian joy. Peter wants joy to fuel our good works, which is the only good motivation for doing what's right. To, to joyfully praise God, to worship God with our actions and our activities, to come in line with the person and work of Christ in the way in which we act. The first pillar was hope. We saw that in verses 3 through 5. Peter pointed us to a living hope that we have within us because God, by His Spirit, has regenerated us. And what a tremendous hope, this magnificent inheritance protected for us, reserved for us. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. So this fills us with eager, lifelong joy, the joy of hope. The second pillar is the pillar of perseverance. Last week we learned this golden chain of God's providence. God saves, God grants us faith to believe and to repent, but He doesn't sweep us into heaven immediately, no. He leaves us here on earth and He brings even hardship and difficulty our way so that we would draw near to Him. And in our effort to draw near to God, we find this sweet fellowship, this sweet perseverance. Indeed, hardship is the only way we can discover perseverance and these wonderful moments together with God. And so he fills us with joy even though we are weeping and through great difficulty. Today is all about the joy of fulfillment, the joy that we as New Covenant, New Testament saints are the benefactors of thousands of years of effort and revelation and prophecy you've been around very long, you have, like me, gotten a letter in the mail that says, if you are a customer of AT&T or whatever, between this date and this date, you are entitled 
because you are part of a class action lawsuit. I remember getting that letter for the first time, and I began to dream. Kitchen remodel, a new car, maybe some big investment. And sure enough, that check came, and it had my name on it, and it was signed. That check read John Elif for a dollar and 73 cents. Well, my expectation did not, or reality didn't meet expectation. The reality of our hope is going to far exceed our expectation. But my hope was fueled by this idea that there are all these people, lawyers in this case, all these people working on my behalf, thinking about me, working to benefit me. And I'm just going to sit here and get this check one day. I'm going to be the beneficiary of something I did not work for or strive for. It's out of someone else's work, someone else's effort that I get to enjoy this. The truth is, the more that we understand our new covenant benefits, the more glorious they become and the more we realize we had nothing to do with them. These people laid the groundwork for thousands of years so that we would enjoy new covenant benefits. Our joy grow more and more with the expectation of the end, again, which will be far more splendid than what we even can ask or even think. I was watching a little bit of OU football yesterday, our Hawaii boy, Dylan Gabriel, of course, the quarterback. I was reminded of a story a number of years ago, probably a little bit apocryphal, but I think there's probably some truth to this. Uh, someone told me when the new freshman football players would arrive on campus, the head coach would meet them, tell them to meet him in the middle of Owen Field. Waiting for the coach, the players would look around and gawk at the 90,000 seats and dream of starting one day and playing right there as the crowd cheered. The coach would show up and he would begin to tell them the glories of Sooner football as they walked around the amazing facilities there. He would regale them of the famous teams and the famous players and the coaches and the historic plays, the historic games that took place right there. Eventually, they would make their way to the Hall of Sooner History. And there surrounding them were giant bronze busts, seven of them, of the Heisman Trophy winners. There were the trophies of the seven national championships, and, and there was a, a giant mural on the wall that depicted the 1953 to 1957 seasons when the Sooners went 47-0. and 0. Incidentally, better than anyone else has ever done. No one's matched that. And there are the 50 banners and plaques of the, of the ch uh, conference championships that the Sooners have won throughout the years. And he would tell them, as they all looked around at this, he would tell them, boys, all that you see here, these pristine, state-of-the-art facilities, these beautiful practice fields, the phenomenal weight room, the sauna and the pool and the hyperbolic chamber and the ice baths. All of this was built by those who have gone before you. You didn't build it. Most of the people who did, you will never meet and never know. But let me tell you, they built this for you. They built this so that you could become the best football player ever. You are the object and the benefactors of all their work. Now go out and make Sooner Nation proud. This is, in essence, what Peter is doing. 
He's laying out for us that we are the benefactors of people that until heaven we will never know and never meet. These ancient prophets laid out for us this foundation so that we could enjoy new covenant blessings that they never would see and never would know until glory. And Peter's going to say in the next section, now go and represent the kingdom of God faithfully. All right, let me read to you these verses again. This is the last section, uh, last paragraph of the first section there in 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read verses 10, 11, and 12. Follow along as I read aloud. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. As the 16th century Protestant Reformation moved forward, the Reformers, as they discussed with one another, they realized they disagreed firmly with the Roman Catholic Church regarding the Lord's table. They all agreed with what Rome that what Rome taught was wrong. They all agreed that the church through the priests did not have the power to transubstantiate, that is to perform a miracle changing the substance of bread and wine to Christ's body and blood. More than that, they were opposed to the notion that the mass was in effect a re-crucifixion of Christ and therefore mediating the crucifixion through these priests to the people who took of the uh, bread. So the Reformers agreed that the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's table was wrong. But they couldn't agree entirely on what the Lord's table was really all about. Luther's view was that in a physical way, the body and blood of Christ were still present there among the people. There are varying accounts about the Marburg Colloquy. The Marburg Colloquy is when a number of reformers gathered in Marburg and they sat around a table. And uh, my wife and I have actually been in that room. You can still go to that castle and go to the room where they debated. And uh, there around that table, they debated the, the Lord's table. And it's said by one of the accounts, it's said that Luther, while the men were uh, gathering, he wrote on the table, this is my body, just to make the point that he believed that Jesus Christ, and every time we observe the Lord's table, Jesus Christ in some way was physically there with the people. On the other end of the spectrum was the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli ministered in Zurich and surrounding areas. He believed the Lord's table was simply a symbol. There was nothing spiritual going on in terms of God's presence. There was nothing spiritual. There was no spiritual transaction or no spiritual uh, 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 metaphysically happening there. Nothing really special. In essence, he said, we're just following an order, a ritual order, an order with some symbolic meaning. And what we need to do is just meditate on the meaning of that, which is, of course, the message of the gospel, Christ 
crucified and risen. This, of course, is a very popular view even today. Nothing really happens in the Lord's table. Simply an order that we follow, and its meaning is merely the, me- the message of the gospel. Spencer told me this week that a pastor friend of his would say, we're just following orders. If God told us to wear purple hats, instead of taking the Lord's Supper, we would just do that. It's just God's, the Lord's table is just God's people doing what God said. John Calvin took a middle view. On the one hand, he agreed with Zwingli. Yes, it is a symbol. It's a symbol rich with meaning. It's a symbols of bread and wine symbolizing Christ's body and blood appropriated. We eat it. We take it to ourselves. Yet he also held that something spiritual was happening when the local body observed the Lord's table. Jesus Christ, he said, by means of the Holy Spirit, was there in a special bonding way. There was a unique moment among the people of God in the Lord's table. I think the best way to explain it, because it gets sort of metaphysical the way Calvin describes it, but the best way I've come up to say it is that Calvin believed that each time a congregation gathers to take the Lord's Supper, there is a spiritual renewal of vows, a uniting a spiritual uniting, a communion that actually takes place on a spiritual level, a renewal, a spiritual renewal of the bond that we have together in Christ. Now, to be perfectly honest, for many years I was someone who believed more like Zwingli. I just thought it was just a symbol and we can just see it as a symbol, nothing metaphysical, nothing spiritual was happening. It was just us obeying God and we ought to do that. And I do believe it is a symbol, but like Calvin, I've come to believe something more is happening in the Lord's table. Something spiritually significant is occurring during communion. And the reason I say that, well, a number of reasons, but one reason I say that is because I go all the way back to the first ordinance, which is baptism, and the first Christian baptism, which we could say is Christ's baptism. There in that first Christian baptism the Godhead appeared. God spoke. There was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus was there. And God spiritually united the believers there, all the people who've been baptized under this cause of Christ. And of course, John the Baptist had been preparing people for this very moment that, that the Christ would come who would take away the sins of the world. And God united all under this purpose, this purpose, he said, that pleased him. Well, extending that moment out to Christian baptism, to each Christian baptism, I've come to believe that something special actually happens when we baptize someone. The God has, is with us, uniting that person in a consummating way to the people of God. Yes, he's already a Christian, he's already been regenerated, but baptism is that initiation, that pledge of unity that spiritual solidarity and submission to Christ and the people around Him. So in baptism, the spiritual bond is ratified. The spiritual bond to God and to the other people who are there watching this take place. This person is making their public pledge of allegiance and the spiritual bond takes place. It's similar to the marriage altar, right? These kids have already gotten their marriage license. 
they're already by, by law essentially married, but they come to the altar and they make that covenant public and they sign their names. And now they're accountable to everybody there that they've made this commitment. This next Saturday is our elders monthly elders meeting and I'm going to talk to the elders because I do think we could make our Lord's table observance a little more special because I believe when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is similar to what happens in baptism, though we're not establishing or ratifying that bond, we are strengthening that bond and recommitting to that bond. It's almost like we're renewing our vows. We come together and we say, this is what we're all about. This is who we are, defined by the cross of Christ, His death and resurrection. And we live in spiritual unity. We examine ourselves. We look at our relationship with one another. And this spiritual thing happens in the Lord's table. It's an important and very spiritual time. Well, obviously, one reason why I was reflecting on the Lord's table this week is because we are taking it here momentarily. And I thought it'd be something that we could reflect on because... Sometimes, if you're like me, you've looked at the Old Testament and sort of longed to be a part of what they were a part of that day, especially, I think, at the time of Moses when there are all these miracles happening. The children of Israel are traveling and they see the presence of God, a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, the parting of the Red Sea, water from the rock. They see God do these mighty and sometimes terrible miracles. And I've kind of longed to be there. It would have been awesome to have lived in that time, but an amazing thing to have seen that, the physical presence of God. However, would it surprise you to know that those people, especially Moses and even Abraham, looked longingly to our day. They would look at the Lord's table and think about the spiritual bond and realize they didn't get that. They didn't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament like we do today, not the indwelling. He would come upon people to accomplish special tasks, but He wouldn't indwell them and stay with them, so there was no spiritual bond. It was all imposed upon them by the law, and, and they had to live up to this, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them, encouraging them, comforting them, guiding them, convicting them, and creating that wonderful bond that we have together. And so those people, Moses, Abraham, actually looked longingly upon our day. They longed for our day. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13? Blessed are your eyes, for, their, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And that's essentially what our passage is saying today, right? The, the saints of old looked to things and they didn't know the fulfillment of the Passover would be the Lord's table. They looked to the future and they longed to be a part of that future. Look there at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. Well, this brings us to point number one, the job of the prophets. 
let's do a little work here. That verse, you probably had a little bit hard time following it. It's kind of a word salad, right? It's hard to translate into English. And when people try to start to summarize this, and you look at some of the paraphrased versions like the CEB or the Living Bible, you realize they're missing out on some great truths. And so you go back to the word-for-word translations of the Bible, and you just get lost in all the different descriptors and adverbs and adjectives, and you kind of have to find your way back out again. So we got to do a little bit of work here to understand what this is. Peter says, starts out, concerning this salvation. What salvation? Well, it's the salvation that he spoke of in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we learned last week, this is not merely the end times reward, the, the acquittal at the end. And Peter actually said, are obtaining, you are obtaining this right now. All of those wonderful joys and blessings, the blessings you enjoy in perseverance, the blessings you enjoy and the living hope born in you by the Holy Spirit, the blessings of your certain inheritance and this eternal hope, all those spiritual blessings are yours now in this salvation that God has provided. And so you're rejoicing in inexpressible joy. Concerning this joyous salvation, concerning this salvation, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Word prophets there, I agree with most. This is the reference to the men chosen of God to represent God to the people, to speak for God to the people. And, of course, most importantly, the leaders of those men would be the ones who wrote the Old Testament, the prophets. In fact, the early church often referred to the Bible as the prophets and the apostles, the Old Testament being the prophets. Sometimes they would add in the law, referring to Moses, who was the first recognized prophet, though Jesus goes all the way back even to Abel and considers him someone who spoke on behalf of God as a prophet. But these prophets were the ones that put together the Old Testament. These prophets, these ones who led the people of Israel by producing God's Word from Moses to Malachi... Their job, their duty, was to learn and inquire about the grace that we experience in salvation. The salvation that we enjoy. Now, does this surprise you? It should. Because you read the Old Testament, and it's got all these stories and songs and all this other material that maybe when you first read it or first come in contact with it, you might, not think, this has, think, you might think this has nothing to do with salvation or the grace of God. This is just some random story. What is this about? It's, it's not about salvation. What in the world is this? How is it connected to salvation? You read all these stories and songs and history, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. But prophets, according to Peter, were all fundamentally and ultimately concerned about the grace and salvation promised in that first covenant and reiterated in the following covenants that there would one day come a Messiah. 
And there would one day be a new kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people who would receive this salvation, and unlike the people of Israel, would, would know the Lord and obey the Lord and follow the Lord and experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. You grew up, like I did as a kid in church, you grew up hearing some of these Old Testament stories, and you never heard anything related to Christ or salvation or the gospel or grace from these stories. They just were sort of like Aesop's fables. They were just sort of moral stories to teach you to be a better kid. But a good Sunday school teacher, and this is encouraging to a lot of you people who are teaching young children, a good Sunday school teacher will back away and look at this whole arc of redemption and realize where does this fit in with this idea of salvation? Where is this in the covenants as it points us and takes us to Jesus? Where does this fit in? How does this speak of Christ? If you are having a hard time sleeping at night, there is a sermon series out there that I've preached through each book of the Old Testament. I didn't take more than one Sunday on each book. So you can listen to each book, and I try to make that connection for you, to show you that each one of these prophets who wrote each one of these books were ultimately concerned with the salvation that would come in the Messiah promised from the very beginning of time. Peter is, in essence, giving us a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. He's helping us understand how to interpret the Old Testament. Morality, though certainly taught and encouraged, is not the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament. No, their ultimate concern was the grace in salvation inaugurated by the Messiah. You miss the purpose and the efforts of the Old Testament writers if you just take them as a random song or some sort of encouragement or some sort of moral uh, guide. They can do those things, but the ultimate purpose is to highlight for us the truth of Christ. When I first started seminary, there was a, a burgeoning, a new and growing movement. Sometimes it was called the biblical theology movement. Forms of it had been around for a long time. But the biblical theology movement looked at verses like what we're looking at today, like here in Peter, and they rightly concluded that when we study the Old Testament, we need to be concerned with the quote, I said it a minute ago, the arc of redemptive history. Where is this all headed? How does this all fit in with the ancient covenants that will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in His people? How does this law, story, song, etc., get us to the gospel of Christ? And we ask that question because it was the ultimate concern of the Old Testament authors. God had made promises beginning with Adam about the coming Messiah. And every law, every miracle, every story, every song, all of it, all these promises and covenants, and even the providence of God and the history of God's people was all to reveal the truth about the coming Savior, revealed itself progressively through the Old Testament. Now, just a brief word of warning. In the biblical theology movement, there were some folks who pushed it too far. They made everything some sort of analogy to the gospel, some sort of uh, parallel to some detail in the gospel. Unless you have grounds to believe that the Old Testament author intended it that way, you don't need to make a bunch of illogical uh, jumps and leaps to uh, analogy and parallel. What I am saying is not that every detail 
has some sort of parallel in the gospel. What I'm saying is that the Old Testament authors understood their overarching purpose was part of the lead-up to the Messiah and the kingdom that He would inaugurate. Now, I would just say to you on a practical basis, as you read the Old Testament, remember each section, each story, life, prophecy, set of laws of history, try to see the overarching thrust of the story and how it connects to Christ and the gospel. Try to figure out where this is all leading and what purpose it makes. Okay, verse 11 says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them is indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Again, sort of a word salad here. Simply put, as God authoritatively revealed Himself by the Spirit, as He revealed His saving plan to the prophets, they studied it, they tried to understand it, and they tried to put it all together. Peter says the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, they understood. The ones who really studied, they understood, at least in rudimentary form, that Christ would suffer, the Messiah would come, and He would suffer. Jesus said to His followers in Luke chapter 24, after He had risen, they were surrounding Him, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? What was Jesus saying? What was He telling His disciples? You guys missed the point of the Old Testament. You didn't do your homework. You didn't do what those prophets of old were trying to do and to see this plan of suffering and subsequent glories. This is all part of God's predicted plan. It's all there in the Old Testament. Later in Luke 24, Jesus again speaking to His disciples said in verse 45, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ shall suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Of course, this is similar to what we saw with what Jesus did to the people from Emmaus, and it ties us to the Great Commission as this message goes out all over the world. You guys remember what Paul said? When he was on trial before Agrippa, Acts 26, 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What is that? That Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So this was the job of the prophets, to search and inquire and figure out how this is all leading to Christ. And you learn, you can learn of the sufferings of Christ. Read Isaiah 53. You can learn of the sufferings of Christ, the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant of God. You can even learn from the, about the sufferings of Christ way back in the time of David. As he himself, a picture, he knew he was a a picture of the Christ that was to come, the King who was to come. And he knew there was suffering involved. But there were also subsequent glories. That was the job of the prophets. 
Now let me wrap this up. Verse 12 is just dripping with this sort of eager, joyous anticipation. It shows us now why we should maintain incredible joy. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Number two, the joy of the prophets. So the Holy Spirit revealed to these prophets the glories and joys that were not theirs but were prepared for those who would come after them. They knew that the joy that we have of salvation, of the indwelling Holy Spirit, of the bond that we experience in communion, that all the joys that we have in being a Christian that they would not experience. They would only get a taste. They would only see a shadow of what was to come. They understood they were serving not themselves, but us. Jeremiah 31, 31. God is speaking to Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when we took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one of them teach his brother and his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel 36, beginning in 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the exact kind of thing that Peter was referring to. The Old Testament prophets look forward to the day and they rejoiced that one day the Messiah would be here and He would send His Spirit and His Spirit would inhabit the people of God in this new covenant, in this new kingdom. And God would be with them even more than God would be with the people of Israel. You think about that. I mean, look at these miracles of old, how God preserved them and saved them and fought for them and did all kinds of miracles for them. And yet, according to Old Testament prophecy, God is more with us than He is with even the children of Israel because He put this, His Spirit within them. The joy of the prophets is sort of like the joy that some of us parents have watching our son dive into the end zone for a touchdown or da daughter walk across the stage and receive her diploma. It's not what we've accomplished. We've done all the preparation work, but they get to have the joy of the touchdown or the graduation. We get to be the ones breaking the goal line in these terms. We get to be the ones walking across the stage and enjoying that moment. 
In the new covenant, which will be a covenant of blood, the Messiah's blood, God would grant His people a spiritual communion with Himself and with one another, something the Old Testament saints, the kind of communion the Old Testament saints never experienced for themselves. And the Old Testament prophets looked forward with eager anticipation to this day. They could only look afar and rejoice for this day that we experience. Folks, this is our joy. We're so blessed to enjoy this bond. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Drink of it, all, drink of, drink of it, all of it. We get to ingest the full amount of His covenant. We get to ingest the full measure of what was promised all throughout the Old Testament. We have something not even Abraham or Moses or Elijah or David had. All these new covenant promises. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the full revelation, right? We have the rest of the story, so to speak. The story of Christ of Nazareth. We get to know what's happening. We get to hear the end of the story, reading the book of Revelation. They didn't have that. We get to see the whole picture. We get to enjoy, as I said, this permanent moment-by-moment bond of the Holy Spirit with God and with one another. We're part of this spiritual kingdom that's expanding all over the world, and it's a kingdom that will never suffer any defeat. You think of the kingdom of Israel. It seemed like they went from defeat to defeat. We get to go from victory to victory. It never experiences defeat. God's kingdom marches on and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We get to be a part of that kingdom that never ceases to produce and never ceases to produce victories. We enjoy, as I started out with, we enjoy rituals and ordinances that are not merely visible signs. As amazing as that pillar of fire was, it was something they only saw. We get the fire inside of us the Holy Spirit, and we get to experience the presence of God every single day of our lives if we're a believer. You understand why the prophets longed for that day? You understand why the prophets looked longingly to our day? Why Peter said we should rejoice with inexpressible joy? We get to be the benefactors of something they laid down long ago. Incidentally, Peter mentions here at the end, there are others who look longingly. See that at the end? The most powerful, perfect creatures, the angels, long to look. Peter says angels long for this. These incredible beings will never experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They will never experience a moment of regeneration. They'll never experience the grace and mercy of God wash over their souls and be brought back to life spiritually. They never experience that. They long, and they see that, and they wish they could be a part of that. We get to touch God like these magnificent, all-powerful beings will never experience, Peter says. They'll never experience the moment of baptism when God, the Godhead, ratifies your place among a people who are dedicated to follow Christ. These angels never experience the Lord's table when that bond is expressed and renewed and deepened. And so Peter is saying, 
we get to enjoy something that for thousands of years people could only long for. And because of that, why don't we rejoice? And that joy, again, will be the foundation for holy living. Well, let's pray that even today we'll enjoy and cherish these wonderful realities. Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us in Christ. What joy and privilege and blessing it is to be new covenant people that for thousands of years promises and providence was laid down for our benefit so that we could enjoy the privilege of being a new covenant Christian. We could enjoy a moment even like we're going to enjoy here in just a little bit as we take the Lord's table together, a moment where we can be bonded together in purpose and in spirit. Lord, we love you and we worship you. We pray always for those in this room who may not know you. I pray they would look longingly upon salvation, understand that they are sinners, that they cannot get to heaven through good works, but only because of Christ. And I pray they'd place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Pray that they'd turn away from their selfish lives and follow after him and join this company of people who are bonded together in spirit because of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.